This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. Hey everybody, this is Matt Davis. In this episode, I interviewed Dr. Michael Byerlein, a researcher at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, Texas. We started off the conversation with some talk about the choosing of a career as a medical doctor or an academic PhD. Now, Dr. Byerlein's father was actually a medical doctor and steered him away from being a doctor because of the stress that kept him up at night. Next, we talked about the pursuit of Dr. Byerlein's doctoral work in the USA at Brown University. We, he had specific motivations to get a PhD in the USA versus Germany because of the German academic system being very rigid and hierarchical. Now, in his doctoral work, Dr. Byerlein studied the role of interneurons in the brain and modulating behavioral states to an organism. Now, the brain is composed of 70 to 100 billion neurons. Not all of these neurons perform the same function, nor are they the same type of cell. There are two main classes of neurons, the excitatory and the inhibitory cells. Interneurons are generally inhibitory. Now, you might think, why don't we just have a brain composed of excitatory neurons and it can just carry out the computations and process information. The problem is that too much excitation is actually a bad thing, and this is what we see in patients that have epilepsy. So the brain has a delicate balance of excitatory and inhibitory connections, which are able to process information, but also prevent the runaway excitation that is characteristic of epilepsy. Next, we went on to discuss the role of fluorescent Based indicators in measuring neural activity. Traditionally, neural activity has been measured using wires and electrodes, which just directly measure the, uh, the activation of neurons in the immediate vicinity of the electrode. New techniques allow us to observe neural activity using these fluorescent indicators, which light up in the presence of calcium. Now, calcium is sort of an indirect measure of neural activity. So we can see the neurons lighting up with, we have this specific dye in the neuron. Now, this gives us really good single cell resolution for tracking activity. And in fact, we could record the activity of hundreds of neurons that we can see under a microscope all lighting up in various combinations. Now, finally, we discussed Dr. Byerlein's current work at UT Health Science Center, which is focused on the role of the basal forebrain in attentional signaling. Now, the basal forebrain is basically an area that is at the the bottom of your brain, imagine just behind your eye, and it is an area that is enriched in cholinergic projections. Now, cholinergic projections, or neurons, are those that release the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. This neurotransmitter is very important in the rest of the body at the neuromuscular junction, but it also has these very important roles in excitatory and sometimes inhibitory transmission in the central nervous system. We talked about the very specific mechanisms that these projections modulate attention in terms of their firing rate 
and their timing of their firing. And these are the ways that the brain can encode information. Enough of my rambling, let's get on to the interview. So you did your undergrad in Germany? Yes. So Germany doesn't have a college okay. type of um, system. System. Yeah. So at least not at the time when I did it. So it, my first degree was a diploma in okay. biology. Yeah. So I went from high school to Tübingen and, and studied biology. Mm -hmm. So zoology, plant physiology, everything that has to do with living yes, yes. creatures all the ologies yeah. right did you grow up in germany or was i that, did okay yeah were your parents sort of academics or part of that tradition or? uh no my dad was a, a doctor mm -hmm. and medical a doctor medical doctor and actually told me you know you can do anything you want just don't become a doctor like me he was very scientifically inclined yeah he was very he was very disillusioned by being a doctor and dealing with Patients and not really solving problems, but by mostly dealing with, mm -hmm. you know, the few cases where he made mistakes, you know, he misdiagnosed someone and then it had a disastrous effect. So yeah. he was a general practitioner and he very often came home and sort of, he had a patient and he told him or her, you know, do this, do that, you know, go to this general, go to this specialist. And deep down you could sort of see, well, he wasn't happy with this diagnosis. So, yeah. and then he would sort of wake up in the middle of the night and say, okay, this person told me he's going to show me his slides from, from Africa. Yeah. Of course he has malaria. So it was sort of these kinds of, so a, a sort um, of a constant, a constant worry yeah. that there was a mistake and, And ultimately, I think he was he was intrigued by this sort of intellectual challenge, but yeah. he was also equally or more worried by all the sort of ramifications. The stakes are really high, right? So I think he sort of was happy that I, I chose a scientific path because he realized, okay, this is this is the the, the interesting thing and the, the fun thing without having all these dangerous and and troubling ramifications of making a mistake. And so you did your graduate work uh, at Brown. What sort of compelled you to pursue your studies in the U.S. versus staying in Germany or, or being in Europe or something? So I, Tübingen had a nice exchange program by the German Academic Exchange Service mm -hmm. where essentially I was able to study a year abroad in the U.S. while an American student was in Tübingen paying yeah. my tuition at Brown. Which <laughs> of course, I would have never been able to pay myself. Mm -hmm. And I, I took this sort of as an opportunity to take, you know, different classes, computer science, uh, photography classes at Rhode Island School of Design, uh, psychology classes, artificial intelligence classes, just programs that yeah. I wasn't exposed to in, in Germany. And at the end of that year, I got to meet my future PhD advisor, mm -hmm. worked a little bit in his lab doing computational neuroscience, but really didn't have any inkling to stay any longer. I, I just viewed it as a very nice, meaningful experience, but I was happy to go back to Germany. Sure, yeah. The moment I came back to Germany, I had this reverse culture shock. I hated everything. I couldn't deal with the doors being closed to my you know, professors. Yeah. I, I couldn't deal with sort of the very hierarchical system mm -hmm. where you really have to 
you work yourself up very, very slowly to have any access to nice signs and, and important insights. So I immediately applied to, to graduate school in the U.S. And just because I already knew Brown, I, I thought, well, this is, this is a nice place for me. And I think the feeling was mutual. They yeah. recruited me, and that's how I started at Brown. You found that the environment was basically more to your suiting, and you thought it would be better for your growth as a Yeah, so student. Brown has a very, very small graduate school. It's mostly known as a college, but it, yeah. the graduate school is very small. So even if you put all the graduate students together from different departments, after a year or two, you pretty much know everyone, Yeah, which is good and bad. But yes, for, yes. for me, it was mostly... Good because it's it's you know neuroscience is a very interdisciplinary field. You Absolutely. want to know people in in physics who are interested in in modeling. You want to know people who do uh, more molecular work. So after a while, you pretty much know everyone who could be relevant to your your research or mm -hmm. your thinking. Yeah. and take advantage of those collaborative resources. And, Absolutely. And so I was reading about your work at Brown. You were part of a team that was studying the function of inner neurons. And I was wondering if you could speak about what are inner neurons in the brain and what was your team's discovery and how that added to knowledge that we previously didn't have. So inner neurons in the brain are usually GABAergic. So there's essentially two main cell types in the brain. There's excitatory cells that release glutamate, and there are inhibitory cells that release GABA. And these two cell types are acting in a very sort of delicate balance. So yeah. clearly there's two, these two populations, they mutually interact with one another so that the, the system is in delicate balance. Mm -hmm. so, and that's particularly true for neocortex where lots of excitatory cells form connections with each other. So without inhibition, there would be this runaway excitation. And there are probably many different classes of interneurons that all have very different functions. They're all activated at different times. My PhD lab has done a lot of work describing these different types of interneurons, how they're connected with the excitatory cells, uh, how their synapses operate. Mm -hmm. And in addition, a postdoc in my lab, as well as I have shown that the interneurons that belong to the same class are actually connected by electrical synapses. So electrical synapses were long thought to be something that happens in, in invertebrates, in, in quote-unquote lower animals, yeah. where it's important that neurons fire synchronously. We've shown that if you record from neurons, interneurons that belong to the same class, they tend to be uh, interconnected by these electrical synapses quite frequently. Yeah. Whereas the electrical synapses between excitatory cells and interneurons don't exist. So mm -hmm. it's really, it seems that, that the electrical synapses really bind neurons together that functionally do similar things. Yeah. And um, that was essentially my, my PhD work. And so these different classes of interneurons may be part of a sort of system that is activated in different states of the organism? Is that right. the idea? Right. Or, yeah. So again, there's there are now many uh, in vivo studies where people have been able to record from interneurons during different states of arousal. So the animal is either um, drowsy or it's asleep or it's, it's paying attention. And these recordings have shown that different classes of interneurons are active in different states. So, um, and for in your postdoctoral work, I was reading about you 
uh, use sort of visual indi indicators as opposed to sort of the traditional electrical approaches to study neural function. Um, what was your experience with those and how? what sort of advantages and disadvantages do these optical indicators have? Right, so I spent some time looking at uh, network activity in cortex using these fluorescent-based indicators. So the idea was to add a fluorescent dye that's sensitive to calcium changes to cortical slice, and these dyes would be taken up by neurons, and following that dye uptake, you can then image neuronal activity not directly, but by just by their, the spike-induced increases in, in calcium. So that already tells you that one of the big disadvantages of this system is that you're not looking at directly at activity mm -hmm. yeah. because you're looking at a calcium signal that's ultimately indirect. It's generated by spikes, yeah. but not every spike necessarily generates a calcium response, mm -hmm. or perhaps it's so small that it's hard to detect it. The other issue is that these, these calcium signals are very slow compared to individual spikes. So while you're able to say these neurons are active, these neurons are quiet, you're not necessarily able to say how fast these yeah, neurons fire action potentials. So that's one of the, the limitations of these sort of calcium-based indicators that makes it sometimes difficult to look at very precise timing of action potentials. But of course, it, it comes at this big advantage of looking at populations of cells and having sometimes single cell resolution. So being able to say, exactly saying which neurons are being activated, how many are activated, and then in combination with other indicators, being able to say, is it mostly the excitatory cells or different types of inhibitory cells that are being activated for a given stimulus? So ultimately, it's a much more powerful way to, to look at networks and how networks operate as opposed to just doing single cell recordings. And so what is the focus of your current work um, at UT Medical Center? What sort of systems are you studying and are you applying those techniques that you learned throughout your graduate? and postdoctoral work, and how does that manifest in your current research? I stuck with most of the techniques that I learned in graduate school, because ultimately, or the questions that I'm asking right now, these are the most appropriate techniques. Um, but neuroscience, the way it develops right now, is a very techniques-driven field. I think it's important to, to expand your horizon to learn new imaging techniques to, to start, for me personally, to start doing in vivo experiments because I've never had any experience doing in vivo type preparations. preparations. I'm mm -hmm. mostly stuck with um, brain slice preparations. And I think this is, uh, it's now important for the kinds of questions that I'm asking to go into an in vivo system. So what system are you studying right now? So the basal full brain is a structure that's, uh, there are many cholinergic cells that are being activated when animals are paying attention to a novel stimulus, or when animals learn, for example, certain types of associative learning. In other words, um, this is an important structure that's involved in a number of, sort of arousal and attention tasks. And so it's long been known that the basal forebrain has a strong projection into the neocortex. And that projection has been thought to underlie a lot of these attentional behavioral effects that one sees. But mm -hmm. what we do now is we're, we're, we're characterizing a second pathway that's formed by the basal forebrain that hits a very 
peculiar nucleus of the thalamus called the thalamic reticular nucleus. And that in turn generates activity that indirectly causes burst firing in cortex. Mm-hmm. So we think that there's a separate pathway from the basal foreground into wide areas of cortex. It has a very different type of dynamic. It's a very different type of firing behavior. And because we know the thalamic reticulum nucleus based on in vivo studies is also involved in a, a number of attentional tasks, we think that a lot of what is shown in cortex could actually be mediated by this thalamic pathway rather than the direct pathway. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think this is the sort of the next important question to ask how these two different pathways distinguish themselves from each other. What is the role of these two pathways? Are these two pathways even generated or mediated by the same group of basal foreground cells or are they separate? What does that sort of alternative pathway, what does the signaling look like there, and what are some interesting behaviors that is different than where you see in other parts of the brain? Right. So what we observe is that in the basal forebrain input that goes into the thalamic reticular nucleus, the ultimate output of this system is burst firing in thalamic neurons over a very wide window. Mm-hmm. So in other words, there's multiple neurons, each of them fires bursts, but bursts in different cells occurs at different times. So yeah. this, for example, would be a great imaging project where one would uh, would see how mm-hmm. large the population of neurons are that engages in this activity, yeah. and one burst firing occurs in different neurons at different times. But the, the ultimate readout of, of this thalamic activity is really happening in cortex, and we, we think that neurons in cortex that receive sort of convergent input from the thalamus will see a sort of a persistent input that ranges from up to a second, perhaps, even if the basal forebrain is only activated once. So there's a very, that's a very different, essentially the input in, the, the activity in the basal forebrain is stretched out over time as opposed to a, a, a cholinergic input that interacts with cortex directly. Yeah. And how do you think that's important for incoming sensory information and changing the behavioral state of the organism? Right. So, so, so far we haven't even considered the role of the sensory input that happens at the same time. So this is something that, that would be important to address, and we can do it in vitro, but I think ultimately it would be much easier to do this in vivo. The prediction would be that rather than what we see when there's no sensor input, which is that uh, the, base, the, the thalamic neurons are being activated at different times over a wide range, what the sensory input will do is it will, will activate thalamic neurons synchronously. Yeah. So there's a very strong divergence of individual um, sensory inputs onto thalamic neurons, yeah. and that will cause strong synchrony. And um, so I think depending on the presence or absence of the sensory input, these thalamic neurons will fire either strongly synchronous or not so synchronous. Mm-hmm. So in the next five to ten years, do you think that's what you'll be, uh, what you'll hope to demonstrate, or what, what do you think will come out of your lab? And- we will continue to to look at this system and hopefully add some in vivo work suggesting uh, directly addressing the role of this basal forebrain input into the thalamus and, and, and ask 
what it ultimately does in cortex on both a physiological level, what the cells do, but also on a behavioral level. I think in five to ten years I will be doing something else. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I think this is a, I think it's an interesting question, but I also think it's hopefully a question that has a clear beginning and a clear yeah, end. Yeah, yeah. Um, Those are rare in science, <laughs> right? And 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 sometimes what happens um, as you go on, and this happened to me many times. As you go on, you find more interesting things along the way. And yeah. you get, quote unquote, distracted mm -hmm. to something perhaps more, yeah. more interesting. But this is something that's hard to predict. Sure. So I think for now we have a, a set of questions that are obvious next steps and will keep us busy yeah. for one to two years. And then we have to reevaluate and see where, where things stand. Have, has there been something that has triggered that impulse in you where, hey, maybe I'll think about checking out that? area of research in neuroscience or, or most of what I've done I have to say and this is something the NIH probably doesn't want to hear has been by accident so mm -hmm. I've been um, isn't that all all the great discoveries are though you know some, yeah. somewhat in part perhaps, by accident so. perhaps yeah. yeah so we've been studying certain aspects of synaptic circuitry and that has led to some Inside, but also it, it showed us some something surprising and unexpected, and then we would follow that avenue and would address a question, mm -hmm. but again find something interesting along the way. So I think most of my work throughout, you know, starting with finding gap junctions, this is not something that I looked for during my PhD. Yeah. It really was something that happened yeah. by accident, and I was actually I. Not to be sidetracked, but I, I did my first dual recording, um, and I saw spikes in one cell, and I mm -hmm. saw little spikelets in the other cell. And if you looked at this today, it's okay. These are gap junctions, no doubt. But I looked yeah. at this, and I thought, well, there's something wrong. And I there's some and, artifact and I, here. There's an artifact here, yeah. and I I got rid of the recording. Yeah. And I did it again, and I saw it again. And I thought, well, this is strange. And still, I thought, too, it's annoying. Let, let me get another pair. Yeah. I did it a third time, and uh, it happened again. I said, okay, it's it's time to ask my PhD advisor what, what he thinks. And he sees this, and within a millisecond, he screams, oh, gap junctions. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's interesting how sometimes having a little bit of distance yeah, distance from something gives you a lot more insight into uh, what to expect uh, or what not to expect, and as opposed to doing this work daily. And mm -hmm. so the lesson I've really took from this was that I I want to see a lot of the raw data yeah. in my lab because sometimes there's exciting things happening, and even if you're a perfect scientist. You know, you're sort of focused on your the question at hand, the task at yeah. hand, and you're not seeing the things that happen to the left and to the right. Yeah. Which is a good thing because you want to focus, you want to get done. Yeah. But there's there's other interesting things. I mean, you often see what you're looking for, or you're you're trying to see what you're actually looking for and what your hypothesis, you know, what is going to satisfy your hypothesis, right? right? So. You get that sort of laser focus on on that thing, and can't see the forest among the trees, right. as the saying goes. Um, 
So in terms of a successful academic career, what is your key piece of advice for really getting and, and being able to get to professorship position and whatnot and be successful in that? I think, um, I think it's important to have fun. I mean, to really enjoy yeah. what you're doing. But, you know, it sounds a little trivial, but I, I do think that means sometimes that you have to put in extra hours and that shouldn't be a chore. I mean, sometimes yeah. it's, it's this, there's this sort of critical mass of insight where it means, okay, I, let me do this experiment again, or let me try one more thing, or mm -hmm. let me change one more um, uh, thing about how I cut my slices or how I prepare my solutions. Where it's this this going that extra step um, that gives you that that puts you over the hump. Yeah, and, and I think that only happens if you're really excited about what you're doing. Um, I mean, I, I, I did work pretty hard during my PhD, and I think, again, the, it's not the working hard that's important. It's the, it's the it, it should be fun. It should be not a chore. It should be something that's, that you enjoy, and, uh, and then I think it likely puts you into a position where good things happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of general trends in neuroscience, what do you think in the next five to ten years will be big and impactful? Do you see anything sort of on the horizon right now? Or I know we have a lot of emerging technologies, but what do you think is going to be really a thing that's going to impact? Right. So I think they're mostly, but not only because of this uh, new brain initiative, I think there's sort of a re-emphasis on circuit neuroscience, asking how do circuits of neurons interact with one another, what is um, what are sort of the emergent properties in networks of neurons that you can't really deduce from recordings from individual cells. And, um, you know, in part it's because now we have a, sort of a new interest in you know, again, studying larger systems, but there's still single cell or single synapse resolution. And now the technologies are there to, to do the imaging, to, to reconstruct circuits anatomically mm -hmm. and functionally, and, and hopefully also to have the, the the math and the the theory that allows us to to analyze really what we see because I think this was always to me the big bottleneck that we we might be able to image activity in neurons with very precise spatial and temporal resolution mm -hmm. but then we have this mountain of of data and we really don't know what to do with it so I yeah. think this is also equally important not just the, the experimental improvements in, in, in asking, in, in recording activity, but also in developing theoretical methods to, to analyze this activity. So, but yeah, I think it's circuit neuroscience. It's, it's, uh, it's asking what is, what do circuits do? Because yeah. it's, it's this bridge between a lot of the cellar work that has been done that's been very successful and the systems work that's equally been successful, but right now there, we have very little that links those two things together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Great. Um, any interests outside of science, what sort of hobbies and whatnot? I have two daughters, and yeah, they're, they're five and eleven, and mm -hmm. uh, it's yeah, it's interesting because you think having kids is well, it's sort of yeah, it's it, you're you're seeing some of the the same interests or lack of interests developing in, yeah. in what you went through as a child, and mm -hmm. you, you sort of try to nurture things, uh, or you try to discourage things sometimes. And it's 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 sort of doing neuroscience in real life. You yeah. see how you know kids sometimes are incredibly good in in remembering things that seem you know trivial to you or mm -hmm. light year years and years in the past because kids are really focusing on they, they don't get distracted by you know, tax returns or mm -hmm. or other annoying things, but they can really focus on what they're interested in and then they remember much much better yeah. certain events or or certain scenes and yeah it's it's, it's pretty incredible so just that. having kids it's it's sort of, yeah sort of your own little experiment watching how the brain matures not necessarily where you're right. intervening but you're observational there's you know development of visual right. system and all sorts of things object permanence and all this right the other this. interesting thing about kids is, is just their ability to uh, learn languages. So my our daughters grew up in, or the oldest daughter grew up in Morocco. Okay. Uh, so my wife is Moroccan. She had to go back to Morocco for a few years. Mm -hmm. um, so my oldest daughter, she, she, uh, first language actually is Arabic, and she had French in kindergarten, wow. and then she learns English here, um, and she can effortlessly switch between these three languages, wow. which yeah. is. You know, very hard for me to do to between switch between English and German, mm -hmm. um, and she clearly has a different concept of expressing herself. Where there's sort of a, a language independent concept that develops in her brain, and then she speaks it. So she uses the she adds the the right language as it comes out of her mouth. It's very yeah. different from what I do, where I have to develop the concept in in either English or German. So, for example, I, I dream in English. But I still have to count in German. I can't oh, wow. count in English yeah. <laughs> in my head. So it's really hardwired for me, whereas for her, it's it's a very different process. And it's yeah, it's it's interesting to see that. Great. Well, thanks for talking to us today. Sure. Enjoyed it a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.